Let's bow for a word of prayer together, okay? Father, we thank you for today, and we're grateful, Lord, for uh, the midweek and the opportunity we have to spend time in the Word. Uh, a lot of us come from busy days, uh, whether it's at work or at home with the kids. Lord, there are so many things on our agenda each and every day. Sometimes we can, we can lose track of what it is we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. The devil wants to distract us from the work of the ministry and the opportunity to share the gospel with people we come in contact with. And yet, Lord, we know that we take a brief moment to spend time in your word. We can be refueled and uh, get our batteries recharged so that we know that when we wake up tomorrow and go back to work or go to school or whatever it is we're going to be doing, we have the opportunity to impact other people's lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for calling us into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be a part of a grand inheritance. Thank you, Lord, for your choice of us. We are a blessed people, and we are extremely grateful. Bless our time together this evening, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to finish this chapter this evening. This is the conclusion to the day of the Lord, which was the theme of chapter 2, which is the theme of the book. But it uh, brings it to a unique conclusion as we begin to understand what it is Paul wants these people to grasp. And so he, he talks about praise, he talks about uh, prayer, and, and he talks about a particular precept they need to follow. And so as we unfold God's word for you this evening, hopefully we can answer some questions and on the flip side of that, create a lot of extra questions in your mind concerning the way God operates in the lives of his people. The Bible says these words in verse number 13 of 2 Thessalonians 2, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. What the Apostle Paul does in just a few verses is give us a, a vast overview of God's redemption of his people. It's a verse that's filled with all kinds of theology that will help us understand the plan of God for his people. And what it does is it opens a door for us to understand more of how God works in your life and in mine. In so doing, uh, we're able to understand more of how God is able to call us to himself and sanctify us by his spirit and call us through the gospel itself, as well as the fact that he's chosen us in eternity past. And so as we study God's word together, we're going to look at some things this evening that will hopefully answer some questions for you. But let's begin with Paul's praise. He gives praise to God. He gives thanksgiving to God. You know, one of the things we talked about on Sunday is that when you understand God's call upon your life, the call that commences with God himself, right? The call that truly comes to the gospel and the call that is 
is that which, which compels us to be grateful. There's a compulsion here in Paul's heart and mind. He says these words, as you look at the constraint of praise, he says, but we should always give thanks. You know, praise is obligatory, and yet we don't look at it that way as Christians. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, the 21st verse, uh, the Lord said, the people that I have formed for myself, they will declare my praise. God makes it very clear that the people that I have formed for me, the people that I have called to myself, the people that I've worked in, they're going to declare my praise. And so there's this certain compulsion about praise that we have that, that's natural to us who are believers. We want to give thanks to God. Remember what Psalm 33 says? It says that praise is becoming or praise is fitting or praise is beautiful for the upright. In other words, what makes the Christian beautiful is the praise they give to God, their desire to give thanks to God. We are a people of praise. The Bible says over in um, Psalm 50, verse number 23, whoso offereth praise glorifies me. Whenever you offer praise to God, you put him on display. You thank him for what he's done. And Paul was compelled to give thanks to God for what had happened in the lives of these in Thessalonica. I mean, after all, he just talked about the day of the Lord and the retribution that's going to come upon those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel and don't love the truth. And yet he recognizes that these people had been loved by the Lord and these people had been called by his name. And therefore, he can't help but give thanks to God for what is happening in their lives. Over in Psalm 107, remember the psalmist says these words, Psalm 107, verse number one, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. The redeemed are the ones who give thanks to God. The redeemed are the ones who have this obligation to praise God. Not because it's like, oh, I gotta do this, or it's, it's I want to do this. There's this inner drive and passion to give praise to God for how he works in and through the life of his people. But what Paul does is, is help them understand the, the, the security that, that they have in Christ because he's called them. He, he wants them to understand that he's giving praise to God because they can have the assurance that they're going to spend eternity with the Lord God of Israel. Remember what it says over in the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, verses that you and I know well. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's this promise of glorification. These people that God has called will ultimately be glorified. There's great security in the verses that he gives as he begins to help these people in Thessalonica understand that God is to be praised for what he has done. 
So he says, we should always give thanks to God. There's something about praise that is to be constant in our lives. Not to be sporadic, but to be constant. And Paul is continually talking about always giving thanks and always giving praise because he was compelled to do it. There was something about the praise that he offered that had to be regular, that couldn't be irregular. And he couldn't help but tell them that there's this constant praise we are giving to God for what he has done in your life. You know, that, that's so important because we want to thank God for, for what he's done in our lives, but we also need to want to thank God for what he's done in each other's life, that he saved us and, and brought us to himself. And we want to give praise to God for that. And they give praise to God not just because of his, his redemption, but you even give thanks to God for his retribution. We, we give thanks to God always for, for everything that he does. We just don't give thanks to God for certain things. We give thanks to God for, for all things. Remember what it says back in, in the book of Revelation, the 15th chapter. Revelation chapter 15. The Bible says these words in verse number 5. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So even in, in heaven, there is this praise to God, not just for the salvation of those who are there, but for the retribution, the judgment that God pours out on those who truly deserve to be judged because of their rebellion against the Lord God of Israel. And so they are praising him because he's righteous, he's true, and he is the Holy One of Israel. How important is that? And so Paul begins by saying to them, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Think about that. Beloved by the Lord. We told you on Sunday that when the call of God commences with God, it commences because he's chosen to love you. He chose to love you before you were created. He chose to love you simply because that was his choice. And so Paul was reminded them that they were beloved of the Lord that God loved them. Over in Ephesians chapter one, remember verse four? Those beautiful verses that Paul says when he says these words, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now think about that. God loved us so much, he chose us. He predestined us to be conformed to his image for the glory of his name. You see, and, and behind that is the understanding that, that the only reason you can give somebody 
as to why you love them is simply because you choose to. It's like when your wife asks you, why do you love me? Well, the only legit answer you can give her is because I choose to. If you say anything else other than that, then you're telling your wife there's something that you do or don't do that's going to cause me to love you or not love you. If I say, well, I love you because you're a good cook, or I love you because you're good, clean, you're good at cleaning the house, or I love you because you're beautiful, or I love you because you're always there for me, I love you because you make more money than I do, you're loving her for the wrong reasons. But if you say, I love you just because I, I just want to, I just choose to love you. But see, we, we want to be loved because of something that we've done. Because somehow we, we think that we can gain the approval of somebody by, by doing the right thing, saying the right thing, looking the right way, being the right way. But with God, he just chooses to love us. And when we understand his love and what that means, we choose to love others because that's what love is. Anything else would, would be manipulative. It wouldn't be a true ministry to somebody else. I can't love you because of something that you did. Now, I can do that, but that's not real love because love is a choice that I make to give myself to you. And Christ gave himself for us. We're in the beloved. And so that whole call of God upon our lives that we're talking about on Sunday that commences with God, it does so because of his great love with us. Remember 1 John 3, verse number 1? It says, Oh, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And how many times have we told you over the years that that phrase, what manner of love, what manner is a, is a phrase that, that speaks about something that's from another, another world, that's alien-like in terms of its character. It, it's from another dimension. It's something that's not from this dimension. It's not something that we understand in this world because it's so otherworldly. What manner of love is this that the Father bestows upon us that we should be called the children of God? There's nothing from this natural realm. It's nothing from this dimension that helps us understand the love the Father has for his own. It's like what the Bible says in Mark 4, what, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, right? Same phrase is used. This man, this otherworldly man is from another dimension. He's not like from this world. He's from another world. He's an alien-like creature from a, another dimension because there's nothing in this world that can compare to that. That's the way it is with God's love for us. I'm not so sure that we'll ever truly comprehend God's love in, in, in this life. We might in the next life, in eternity, but I'm not even sure we're going to comprehend it then. Because it goes way beyond anything that you and I can ever, ever imagine. And that's the, the love that, that compels God to call his own. So Paul says, I want to praise God for what he's done in your life. I want to praise him always for the fact that you are beloved by him. It goes on a little further when it says in verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us. So much so, he's, he's given us eternal comfort. He's given us good hope by his grace. He's done what he's done simply because he's chosen to love us. We read it on Sunday, Deuteronomy 7, verse number 7. Why did God choose Israel above all the other nations of the world? Just because he chose to love them. 
There's no other reason. There's nothing that Israel did that made, made them lovable, right? There's nothing about Israel that made them great so much so that he would say, wow, this is fantastic. I need you to be my nation because you're so intelligent. You're so smart. No, I just chose to love you and that you're the ones I want to use. That's the way it is with, with us. God chose to love us. And so Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Wow. Chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, I mentioned something on Sunday that I, I really want to kind of clarify with you this evening, and hopefully it might even raise more questions for you, which would be a good thing because that will drive you to study the Scriptures, and that's always a, a great thing, right? We talked about Sunday morning about I don't believe in a, in a double predestination. There are some people who believe in that. Well, God has chosen us from the very beginning. Does that mean then that he didn't choose others? Yes. Well, does that mean that he, that he chose them then to and appointed them to, if we're appointed to salvation, that means they must be appointed to damnation. Well, you can logically say that in your mind, but you've got to be careful that you prove that scripturally. There are three passages in scripture that people always refer to when they speak to me about God appointing man to damnation. The first one is in, in Jude 4. If you've got your Bible, turn over to the book of Jude. It's right before the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book of the New Testament, just in case you didn't know where that was. Listen to what Jude says. Jude wants to, to, to write, or Jude is writing to these people. He wants to talk to them about their salvation, but was sidetracked by the necessity to contend for the faith. He does so because, verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people, okay, that maybe your text says have been ordained for this condemnation. And so people say, okay, this verse here will tell you that there are certain people that have been ordained to be condemned. The problem is, the word ordain is the word that means marked out for or written down long ago. What was written down long ago was the judgment of those who are false teachers, the judgment of those who apostatize the faith. That's what was written down a long time ago. That which was ordained or marked out was that judgment that would come upon all those who would turn their back on the Lord and apostatize the faith. It's not that they were appointed or written down for condemnation, but the judgment itself was written down for those who would ultimately apostatize the faith. Big difference there. You can read about it in the book of Hosea, Zephaniah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. In fact, over in Isaiah chapter 8, it says these words. Isaiah 8, it says, when they say to you, consult the medians and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living, to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, this word excuse me, it is because they have no dawn or no light. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, 
they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. In other words, this is the result of those who are false teachers. They're driven away into darkness. This is what was pre-written long ago. In fact, even in Jude's epistle, it says in verse number 14, behold, or verse 14, it was also about these men, who's that? Apostates, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogant, flattering people for their sake of gaining their advantage. In other words, Enoch prophesied the fifth generation from Adam, what would happen to all those people who lived ungodly lives? They would be judged by God. So what Jude is saying is that what was written down long ago was the judgment that would come upon people who would turn their back on the Lord, who would be false teachers, who would apostatize the faith. It's not that the apostates themselves were ordained or marked out for this, but the judgment for all those who apostatize the faith, that was marked out. Okay? Next verse is this, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You still with me? Good. It's going to get better here. Hold on. 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, verse number seven, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So now they say, look, okay, so here is Peter saying that these people who stumble have been appointed to their doom. No, that's not what it says. It's the same thing that Jude says. That is, when you disobey what God says, there is judgment that's going to come. That judgment is appointed because God appointed it. In other words, if you're a believer, right, and you live a life of faith, you live a life of obedience. The result is joy and blessing. But if you're an unbeliever, you live a life of disobedience. The result of that is judgment and condemnation. And so what he is saying is simply this, that what has been appointed is the judgment for all those who disobey the gospel. That's all it says. God is not saying that I am appointing people to damnation. I am predetermining in eternity past your doom. That's not what the text says. We can, in our own minds, logically come to that conclusion. But remember, you can't misrepresent what the Bible says. You can only say what God says. So let me turn you to this one, the most famous one, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is one of those chapters in the Bible that people wrestle over and have wrestled over for years. How, do, how does God love Jacob and how does God hate Esau? How can God hate somebody? Now remember, remember Psalm 5.5? 5, 5? 
Psalm 11, verse number five, it says, God hates those who do iniquity. So you can't say, well, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. That's not true. God hates the sinner and hates the sin. Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5. So we know what the Bible says. So let's not go beyond what Scripture says. So if God says, I love Jacob and hate Esau, you know, he can do that because, as we said on Sunday, Esau, remember, in the book of Genesis, that's never said of God toward Esau. It's never said. It wasn't until a 1,000 years later, remember, that Obadiah wrote about God's hatred for Esau. But it really does, deals with the descendants of Esau and the descendants of, of Jacob. Because, as we said on Sunday, that Esau is representative of all those who take pleasure in worldly lusts. That's why he sold his birthright. That's why he wanted to have nothing to do with the blessing that would come to him. He was going to sell it for the sake of a pot of porridge. A pot of whatever, I don't know what it was. A pot of stew, I guess it was. And so uh, the bottom line is his worldly passions and worldly lusts. And so the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau, are representative of all those people who take pleasure in all the things of the world. And God hates that. So he can legitimately say, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Remember in Romans 1, he had, he had talked about abandoning, abandoning man to his, his own sinful devices. God gave them over to the desires of the heart. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Why? Why did God do that? Because it represents all those people who willfully reject, who willfully suppress the truth, who willfully deny the existence of God, even though in their minds they, they, they believe there is a God and they know there's truth. They just don't want to be accountable to the truth and the God who gave us that truth. And so they suppress it. And God gives them over to the desires of the heart, to a depraved mind, to degrading passions. Then when you come to Romans chapter 9, you have to answer the question, why God chooses some and not others? Why did God choose Isaac and not Ishmael? Because he did. So why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Because he did. And we forget that whenever God does something, he does it because he's holy He's righteous, and he's just. God never chooses unrighteously. God never shows partiality because there's no partiality with God. That's what the Bible says. So I can only go by what the Scriptures tell me, which is true. In my mind, I can think, well, God is unfair. He's unjust. He's, he's partial. He's not treating people the same what standard do you go by where God's treat everybody the same? There is no standard like that. God makes the standard. God is the standard, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, the glory of God. He is the standard. And the person who makes the standard can choose to do whatever he wants to do because he is a holy, just, and righteous God. See, you must understand the character and nature of God before you can ever begin to understand how it is God begins to operate. And what, what Paul does in Romans 9, listen, 
is not explain why God does what he does. He just proclaims what God does. That's very important. He doesn't try to explain why God does what he does. He just wants to proclaim what God does because sometimes we can't really comprehend it. Although in Scripture, everything harmonizes together. Sometimes in our little minds, it doesn't harmonize together. So there's lots of questions that we might have. And so Paul, as he writes to the Romans, talks about his love for Israel in the first six verses, right? He just loves Israel. He's willing to give his own life away so Israel would be saved. He's talking about what's, what's going to happen with Israel. How can, how can Israel be saved if God has set them aside for a time being because of their rebellion? Will Israel ever be saved? And, of course, we know that the gifts and calling of God are, are irrevocable. And God has a plan for Israel. But in that plan, there are choices that God made to help us understand the character and nature of God. He talks about in verses 7 and following how, how he chooses Isaac over Ishmael. Ishmael is a descendant of the flesh, where Isaac is is a descendant of the faith. And the blessing was never given to Ishmael, but it was given to Isaac. But even though the blessing was given to Isaac, down then through Jacob, even those descendants, not all of them, would be chosen to be saved, right? Because you know that not every Jew that's ever lived is going to be saved. So even in that, God makes the choice because he's sovereign. And so Romans 9 is about God's sovereign selection of some and his sovereign selection not of some. Very interesting. So it says these words, In verse number 11, for though the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him him who calls. So he made it very clear that when God chose Jacob, he chose the younger to serve the older, right? Because Esau would be the firstborn. When he chose the younger to serve the older, or or, excuse me, the, the older to serve the younger, he did it before they were ever born. That was the plan of God, to let you know that there's nothing that Esau did or Jacob did that would make them better or worse in the whole process. God chose them. It says, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Oh, by the way, in the book of Genesis, Esau never served Jacob. But the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, have served the Israelites for years. That's why you know it's about the descendants of Jacob and Esau, not Jacob and Esau themselves. Because in the book of Genesis, Esau never served Jacob. But the the older will serve the younger. And so it says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I, I hated. Very important. Quoted from where? Malachi chapter 1. That's where it's quoted from. And again, it's the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Esau. Because the descendants of Esau were idolatrous in nature. And God hates idolatry, right? And so he can 
literally say, I hate Esau. Why? Because Esau is representative of all those who have other gods other than the true God. All those who want to sin against the true God and rebel against his nature. That doesn't mean that Jacob didn't sin. He did. Doesn't mean that Jacob didn't make bad choices. He did. But God chose Jacob. God chose the descendants of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the people of Israel for his purposes. And even in the choosing of all of those descendants, within that realm, not all of them would be saved. Only some, because many are called and few are chosen. And that says in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is a great illustration because he takes you back to Exodus chapter 32. Listen, where Israel was down below and, and, and they were... They made this golden calf and began to commit idolatry, and Moses was up on a mountain, right? Mount Sinai. And then he comes down, and God says, you know what? I'm going to kill him. But he only kills 3,000. Now, if God is just, he kills them all, right? But because he's also mercy, he only kills 3,000 of them. They should have all died. It's like when you're born. In sin, did your mother conceive you, right? So as soon as you are conceived, God, because he's just, should kill you immediately upon conception because you were born with the sin nature. So if God was all just, you die. But because God is mercy, you're born. Because God is grace, he lets you live. You see, you can't take one attribute of God and fixate on it because all the attributes of God are 100%. He's 100% grace. He's 100% mercy. He's 100% love. He's 100% wrath. He's 100% righteous, just, holy. All those, he's 100%. And you can't take bits and pieces of God and like this part and not that part because you're going to misconstrue who God is and come up with a warped theology. So, Paul makes it very clear that, that, that God's compassion is based on who he is and what he wants to do and who he chooses to have mercy on. And he chose to kill 3,000 of the Israelites. You got 2 million Jews, he kills 3,000 of them. He lets the rest of them live. That's mercy. If he was all just, they would have all died. But in his justice and in his mercy, when they come together, you're able to get a composite picture of the true identity and character of God. So it says in verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. It all depends upon God. He's in charge. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Wow, think about that. He says, why did God raise up Pharaoh? For one purpose, so he can make his name known in all the land. God used Pharaoh to make his name known in all the land. And, and Moses would go and Aaron would go and they would, they would preach to, to, to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Seven times it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Ten times it says, and God hardened his heart, right? Well, how can they both be true? How can they both be right? 
because they both are. Both are true. And even though I can't reconcile that in my mind, how Pharaoh could harden his heart, and then God would harden his heart, and then God raised up Pharaoh for his own purposes, that he might make his name known in all of Israel. Read the book of Joshua. How do you think Rahab got saved? How did Rahab get saved? We'll talk about Rahab in Hebrews 11, sometime down the road when we finally get there. But when we look at Rahab, she got saved because she had heard what God did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing about a word concerning the Christ, but she heard the truth. Joshua 9.9 says that even the pagans trembled at the God of Israel because of what he did to the Egyptians. See that? God raised up Pharaoh so he could make his name known in all the land. That's what God did. He chose to do that. And then it says, he has mercy on whom he has mercy. He hardens whom he decides to harden. Remember Pharaoh's willful rejection of God led to Pharaoh's judicial rejection by God. That's the way it always is. Romans 1, willful rejection, willful rebellion against God will lead to a judicial rejection by God towards you. And the Bible always explains it that way. Very important to understand that. And so it says this, and I must hurry. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Very important. Because what he does is what he's saying here, when you begin to question God, you revert back to Romans 1. You become like the characteristic of those in Romans 1 who decide they want to create God in their image. Whenever you question God, you are automatically recreating God in your own image. That's why Isaiah 45 says that whoever questions God is to be cursed. We have no right to question God, but somehow we think we do because we think we have a better standard than God does. We think we're smarter than God. We think we deserve an answer. We deserve nothing. The only thing we deserve is hell. And because God in his grace and mercy grants us heaven, we are a blessed people. But we deserve nothing. But we think we have an answer. And so he says, does the pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? No. Pots don't speak. They can't speak. They can't do anything but be a pot. And he, so he uses a very simple illustration. And then we come to the point I want to get to. Here it is. Ready? It took me a while. Verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called. And people say, well, see, right there it says that God prepared vessels for destruction and God prepared vessels for mercy. In other words, God ordained those who would be destroyed and God ordained those who would be or find mercy. You think that's what it says, but that's not what it says. Two different words are used for the word prepare. 
And with two different words being used, you have two different tenses being used. The first word is kartartizo, okay? Kartartizo is used in the passive sense. Vessels prepared or fitted for destruction. It's in the passive tense, why? Because God is not the subject who is actively involved in fitting them for destruction. The next word, prepared for mercy, is the word pro etoimazo, which is from pro orizo, which is, means predetermined. And it's in the active tense, meaning that God is actively involved in preparing and fitting those vessels for mercy. In other words, one, God is not involved in. He's leaving them to their own devices. The other one, he's completely involved in. Why? Because if God's not involved in your life, guess what? You never get saved. God has to do it. God raises dead men. And we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And so it makes it very clear it says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known? Listen, do you know that God is as glorified in creation as he is in destruction? You can't say that God is glorified when he saves men, but he's not glorified when he condemns men. When the wrath of God is put on display, guess what? God is still glorified because that's how God is seen. How many times did we tell you early on in our study that God is best known by the judgment he enacts? The best way to understand God is to understand the judgment he enacts upon man. Because then you understand those who don't receive judgment and the mercy and grace of God. So incredible to understand. God wanted to demonstrate his wrath. So God is glorified when he displays his anger. Did you know that? John 2 cleanses the temple, right? Zeal for my father's house consumes me, right? The apostles knew when Christ went in to cleanse the temple with a whip and turned over the money changing tables, right, that he was portraying the anger, the righteous indignation of a holy God. He was being glorified when he did so. God's just not glorified when he loves you. He's glorified when he disciplines you. God's not glorified when he saves you. God is glorified when people are condemned to eternal hell because the book of Revelation is all about the retribution of God upon man. And God displays his glory when he judges man for his sin. Very important to understand that. He makes his power known in creation and in destruction. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath who by the way, prepared themselves for destruction. That's exactly what it says. They prepared themselves for destruction. He endured patience. What kind of patience? Their blasphemy, their rejection, their anger, their animosity toward the King of kings and Lord of lords. But he was patient. He endured. He was long-suffering with them. And that's what God did. You're able to see the patience of God, the love of God, and how he endures with sinful man over a long period of time. But the patience of God does, does wear out. And his spirit will not always strive with man. And destruction comes. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he was actively involved in fitting 
beforehand for glory those whom he called, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles as well. People will say, well, if you look at these two words, God ordained some for destruction and God ordained some for, for, for mercy. No, that's not what it says. Some fitted themselves for destruction. They willfully rejected the king. Others were fitted for mercy because God had to involve himself in their lives or they would not be saved. That's what God does. God has a right to reveal his character any way he chooses. And we have no right to ever question how he chooses to reveal that character at any given moment of any given day. God is so good. So, what does that do? What does God's sovereign selection teach us? What does it do? Let me give you six things, okay? Number one, it pummels all pride. It pummels all pride. Knowing that God is sovereign and God sovereignly selects some to salvation, he makes his choice. He did it in eternity past. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8, right? God did this in eternity past. It pummels all pride. I have nothing to do with my salvation. Book of Titus, right? Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. What does Paul say? He says this. Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, when you realize that it's, it's not by anything that we've done, not by works of righteousness. You see, if there was something you could do, there'd be so much pride in our salvation. There's nothing you can do. It was God's choice. It pummels pride. Number two, it promotes God. It promotes God. Remember Psalm 115, verse number one? The psalmist says it this way. Psalm 115, verse number one. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. What did we tell you on Sunday, Philippians 1.29? You believe in God for his sake, not your sake. So when it pummels pride, it promotes God. The problem with us is we don't want to promote God. We want to promote us. That's why when we give our testimony, you ever been to those people who give testimony? 55 minutes they give on all the bad things they ever did and how wretched they were, and then five minutes on God. See, they want to promote themselves. When you ever hear a testimony like that, write that person off. Because that testimony is a farce. Because people who give testimonies that truly represent God spend 55 minutes on God and five minutes the way they used to be. Because the testimony is all about God, God's saving grace, what God did. It's not about what you did. Who cares what you did? All of us are sinners. All of us are separated from God. Just because you might have done this or did that, and you might think that your sin is more glorious than somebody else's sin, and you want to tell everybody else about how bad you were, nobody really cares, right? Because it's all about God. But because we want to promote ourselves, and we promote ourselves because we don't want to 
humble our pride, we want our pride to be lifted up. But when you understand sovereign selection, it pummels your pride because it promotes God. Number three, it produces joy. It produces joy. Remember Luke 10, verse number 20? The disciples came back. They were so excited because they saw uh, uh, the demons being subject to the name of God and, and people were getting saved and how powerful it was. They were, they were so filled with joy. And what did the Lord say? Don't rejoice over this, but rejoice that your names are already written down in glory. That's what you rejoice over. Rejoice that your names have already been written down. Rejoice over the fact that you have been chosen from eternity past. Rejoice in this. This is what you give joy to God about. And so it produces joy because it promotes God. And it pummels pride. It promises privileges. Ephesians chapter 1, verse Number three, we read it, and I guess we didn't read it earlier, we read Ephesians 1, 4. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number three, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. It promises great privileges. It propels Holiness. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 12 says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What God does is he explains to us the beauty of those who are chosen in Christ. They put on a heart of compassion. They, are for, they forbear with one another. They're, they're willing to forgive others their sin. Why? Because God in eternity past chose me for himself and was willing to forgive me of my sin. And therefore I am more than willing to forgive you of your sin. And so it is that which truly propels holiness. And it provides security. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, Philippians 1, verse number 6, until the day of Christ. It truly provides security. That's why God's calling and choosing of us is so incredibly important. So Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. One's the divine side, one's the human side. The divine side is that we are sanctified by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who sets us apart under his purposes, but it's the truth that's been spoken to us. Remember we told you on Sunday that the call that commences with God, right, comes to us through the gospel of God. It's conceived by grace and compels us to be grateful. That's what Paul's saying here. We are compelled to give thanks to God. Why? Because something began with him in eternity past. You know what it was? His love for you, his choosing of you. And that choosing of you was evident when you were set apart by the Spirit of God and in faith you believed the truth 
of God. God is so good. And Paul is, is, is wanting to praise, praise him for what he has done. He says, it was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He called you through the gospel. Remember Romans 1.16? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel of Christ, or the gospel of Christ, because it's the power of God into salvation, right? The gospel is so powerful. I, I don't make the gospel powerful. It just is. I don't make anything in the word of God come alive. It's already alive. You know, I, I, I can make it sound dead, but I, I don't make it alive. God's word is living, all right? God's word is powerful. I don't have to make it alive, and I don't have to make it powerful because it's already done that. And so Paul says, it's the gospel that saved you. It's the gospel that called you. It's powerful enough to take you from the pit of despair, to take you from the depths of despair, to take you from Satan's grasp, right, and release you into the presence of God's dear son. That's the gospel we preach. That's the gospel we live by. So Paul begins this last section with praise, and then he goes to this precept, and he says this. He says, so then, brethren, stand firm, hold true, and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, the traditions are not traditions passed down by men. Literally, it is that which has already been passed down to you, which is the revelation of the word of God. 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 2, talks about the passing down of the revelation of God. He says, that which was given to you orally or that which was given to you in written form, listen, I want you to stand firm in that truth. Stand firm in that because, you know, remember in earlier in chapter 2, they didn't stand firm in that faith, did they? They didn't stand firm in that truth. That's why they were so easily deceived by those who came and said that they're already in the day of the Lord. You've got to stand firm in the truth. You've got to stand firm on the truth. It's a word that truly is unique because it speaks to the fact that we need to be strong. You know, Paul says, I don't want you to be weak. I don't want you to vacillate. I don't want you to be tossed to and fro. I want you to stand firm on the truth. That's the only way you can stand firm. only way you can be strong is through the word of God. I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. God's word makes you strong. Nothing else does. Just God's word does. And Paul says, I want you to stand firm based on all the word that was passed down to you. Hold on to it. Get a firm grasp on the truth. Because if you do, you won't vacillate. You won't waver. You'll be strong. And then he gives this prayer, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Wow. Therefore, he says, we want you to understand that this God who loves us is the God of all comfort. And this God who is the God of all comfort is going to strengthen you. How do we know that? Look down in chapter 3, verse number 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So in one verse, he's praying that they be strengthened. And the next verse, he's saying, God's going to do this. 
I'm praying for God to do this in your life because I'm, I'm assured of the fact that God will do this. We, we pray for, for strength for our families. We pray for strength for our husbands and wives. We pray that we be strong, a strong church. But God will make us strong. God will protect us because we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He says, I want you to be strengthened in your heart. Sterizo, word used 14 times in the New Testament. It's a word that means to be firmly established. And only God can do that. And Paul is saying, look, as we conclude this section on the day of the Lord, I want you to know something. You're not in the day of the Lord. But I want to let you know this, that God who's called you and saved you, you have to worry about those people who don't love the truth. You love the truth. You have to worry about those people who are going to face the retribution of God because they didn't know God, you know God. You've been called by God. You understand God. Relax. Be strengthened. Be comforted by the God of all comfort because God will use you in a mighty way as you hold fast his word and complete the work he's given you to do. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you for tonight. The brief moment that we have in your word, we just pray that you strengthen us and teach us your word that we might live for you. Thank you, Father, for the Apostle Paul and the desire he has for those in Thessalonica to be strong. Our prayer, Lord, is that we as a church would be strong. Never waver on the truth, but realize, Lord, what you have done for us. Salvation is all of God. It's not of us. Yes, we receive the gospel. Yes, we believe the gospel. But those are all gifts you grant us. You grant us the faith to believe. You grant us the grace to receive. You grant us the gift of repentance. We can't even turn from our sin unless you give us the gift, according to 2 Timothy 2.25. Everything in salvation is a gift. Once received, we see the beauty of the power of God working in our lives. For that we are grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.